Yeah, that hail was amazing yesterday, wasn't it? Um, as you know, we have, need to move out in seven weeks. So yesterday I decided I'd better pack my garage because you can't wait too long. And so I had everything out. And it was, at, well, fortunately, it, it started getting dark. And then I thought, whoopsie, you better bring it in. And I brought it in, but the car was out. And then Nicholas came and said, Dad, what about the hail that's coming? Because he was on the phone to somebody in, in Gillett's and it hadn't reached us. And at that moment, it just came down. So we had to clear the garage, drive the car, and it was, it was amazing. So, um, but God is good, isn't he? Because we've been praying for rain. And I just look at it, and I see what's happening in Gauteng, and up, um, you know, friends have sent photos of them at, at OR Tambo, where they couldn't take off, and these massive thunder clouds, and it just, I think, thank you, God. Uh, and, and likewise, he's sending, I believe, we're in a time of stirring. We don't know it yet, but we're seeing things around us, just even stuff that's being revealed politically, um, things that are, that are coming out. We're in a time of stirring. And when I look at it, I think if, if we dry and hard like the, the land where the rain is coming to, it's just going to run off in floods like we're seeing. And so my, my heart's cry personally is, God, let me be ready and soft to retain it. Let my, my drains not be full of old compost and leaves. And, and I believe God is calling us at a time now to open ourselves up for that, to, to be prepared for when he comes because he's coming. There's a stirring, and, and I can't wait. And right now he's saying, be peaceful, just be restful. And that's obviously a word for us, but, but as a larger church too, just be restful. Rest in him, because if we're paddling our own boat, we're going to go nowhere. And so this morning I have a word which, which has really come out of three parts, and it builds on the last two weeks of what's been preached here as well. Um, two weeks back I had the privilege of preaching down on the south coast, so I wasn't here when Alex preached. But he, uh, Alex, as Alex does, preached an amazing word on, on the gospel, and, as it was in Genesis, if you remember, and uh, how awesome that is. And he, and he preached the gospel. And today is the day of great salvation. And so before I go further, I just want to say, if you're not in that place, today is the day. As we sang, Emmanuel, God with us. We sang about that night, oh, holy night, where our God came from heaven he came and he manifested himself in our flesh. Think about that. But he didn't stay there. No, he came, he came for, for the Easter time. He came so that he could die, he could be resurrected, and he now rules. But he's still Emmanuel. And how awesome is that? When our boys were very little, Sandy used to go to a group of mums, and there was a Hindu lady there. And in one of the times, uh, she said to Sandy, what is this Emmanuel? Because she had no experience of God with us. But we do. Today is the day of great salvation. And so Alex preached on that. And then last week, um, a fantastic word from Alan. And he preached out of 1 Peter. And I actually just want to read the verses again, how it links on. And it was 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 9 and 10. And I will read it for you. Hear this. But... You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Listen to each of these. A royal priesthood, chosen, firstly, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I love that preach, Alan. Thank you. I went away last week going, yes. Man, think of that. The gospel has come to us. 
Emmanuel. Salvation today. And when you receive that salvation, this is who we are. Holy nation, royal priesthood. How amazing is that? And three weeks back, we were in in the prayer meeting before church. Um, Sandy shared something about a person that she had met. And um, Jonathan said or prayed something which seemed insignificant, but it gripped my heart. And it's built on this, and and it's built on what I want to preach this morning as well. And he said, he prayed this, he said, Weaver in, Lord. don't know if you ever remember saying that, Jonathan, but you did. You prayed it. And he said, Weaver in. Because she was seeking God, and Sandy took a Bible. And, it, and at that, that day in the, in the service, it really hung with me, and I thought, weaver in. And I, and I had a picture of a weaver, and a weaver can be weaving basketry, cloth, so many different things. But in my mind, I had this picture of a cloth, and it was a beautiful cloth. It was full of colors, full of texture, full of pattern. And a, a, the picture I saw was a, a shawl. And through the service, I remember thinking, gee, is this for the Jesus? And, and I felt God saying, no, no, there's more. Just wait, wait. And through that, I believe God was saying that his church is like this cloth. And he is a weaver. And he takes each individual and he weaves us into his church like this beautiful cloth. But here's the amazing thing, church. Look around you. We're a bit different, aren't we? We're all different. There's different textures of threads. Some are a bit like thicker than others. Some are like a bit thinner. Some are quite strong. Some are shiny. Some are, are, are more dull. But God weaves us and places each thread next to the thread that he wants it to be in order to bring out each thread and finally bring out a pattern. And I just had a sense that God was saying, that's you, and I'm the weaver, and I've placed you where you are. So if we in the church today are sitting thinking, why am I not playing golf? Because God has woven us next to the person where he wants us to be. And not only that, but I had a picture of this cloth, and it was beautiful. It was an earthy sort of one of those with patterns on it. And, and I thought, well, that cloth can also be a tablecloth. It can be very useful. It could be used for so many different things. But then God said, just like when Jesus was baptized, his ministry hadn't begun, and he came out of the waters... And the voice said, here's my son, whom I am well pleased. He'd done nothing yet in ministry. And God said, as a cloth, you're beautiful, not because of your function, not because you're a tablecloth or you've kept somebody warm or you've mopped something up. You are beautiful because I've made you beautiful. You are beautiful because of who you are. You are the treasured possession that we're saying. And I had a deep sense that as a church, we need to take hold of that. That we are his beautiful creation and he's put us where he wants us for a time that he wants us. And yes, we do um, leave at certain times, but where you were, you've left your, your mark in that. So out of that, I, had a, uh, I went back to a part in the scripture where, if I could say there was a birth of a church. And um, if I were to title this message, I'd say the birth of a church. And so from this great salvation which Alex preached, into Alan's word of who we are in Christ, that's obviously individually but corporately also, we then come to a part in the book of Acts that I want to look at where a church, we get a picture of a church being born and what that beautiful church looks like. Now, the book of Acts, um, when I first started reading it, I, I kind of read it as if it was day by day. It isn't. It's over a 30-year period. 
And um, I remember at first thinking, yo, these oaks, like they're at the pool and they heal somebody, they walk here, then they meet somebody. And I'm thinking, these oaks are vibing, man. Like everywhere they're going, things are happening. Um, but actually, it's, it's a 30-year period where, where all of this happens. Now, it doesn't diminish the power of what happens. It just puts into place that there's some relationship and stuff that isn't mentioned in amongst that as well. And when, when a church is birthed, when any, anything is birthed, an animal or a person, it's a time of excitement. It's a time of vulnerability. I remember very clearly both of my, my children's births. My wife remembers it more clearly than me, I'm sure. But how you came away, and when Joshua was born first, it was a stormy Cape Day, and we drove out of Pinelands going home. And I remember thinking, life is different. Things have changed. I'm not the same as I was a few minutes ago. But then there was also that sense of, what now? You, you, you know, oh my goodness, now what? Uh, and, and then as, as Joshua and Sandy came home and joined Rosie, our dog, and became the wider family, it became just a beautiful thing. But it was tender and vulnerable. And you almost had to get to know each other and learn each other's characters and personalities. And, and it, I remember it very clearly. It's a vulnerable time, but an exciting time. And then our second child was born. And then I had a crisis because I had Joshua at home and I drove out of the same hospital over the bridge thinking, how can I love him? Because I love Josh with everything I've got. And God said to me, no, you love him equally with everything you've got. And that for me was a real crisis. And it was a time of, of finding out God's heart where he can love each of us just with everything he has. And, and, and in fatherhood, I learned that through going, wow, I can love this guy just as much as this guy. And so as we're a church, this is, the, this is who we are. We love one another with the heart that God loves us. And so I'm going to read uh, from the book of Acts chapter 16. And if you have your Bible with you, then you can uh, follow with me. Otherwise, just listen. I did put a mark here. And uh, in Acts chapter 16, we have a place where Paul and Silas goes to Philippi. And starting in verse 11, it says, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothra. And the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. Notice, they expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul, who became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. 
The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. They must have thought they were cuckoo. Suddenly, just like Jonathan in the shower, I suppose, eh? they were singing and they were thinking, why on earth are these oaks singing? But notice they were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The prisoner woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jail, to the jailer rather, with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can go. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into a prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly. No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the believers and encouraged them, and then they left. Quite a, a lengthy part of scripture, but... Here is Paul and Silas, and they're on their journey, and they come to this place called Philippi. Now, there's an epistle or a letter later on written to the church at Philippi later on. But Philippi was originally known as Crenides or fountains. And then um, the Greeks annexed the city, Alexander the Great, and when he was taking over everything. And then he named it after his um, father, um, Philip II, and then hence it became Philippi. That's where it came from. And in about 164 BC, it became a Roman possession. So as we see here, it was Roman, no longer Greek. So just laying a bit of a background as to the history of this place called Philippi. And 42 BC, Mark Antony and Octavian uh, defeated Brutus and Cassius. Brutus, that's et tu Brutus, the guy who who killed, you know, in in Asterix and all of that. That's where you must get your history from. Um, He murdered Julius Caesar, and then at Philippi, um, Mark Antony and this chap called Octavian, they defeated Brutus and, um, and Cassius at this place, and then it became a Roman colony. Now, um, Octavian was the same Augustus where we get our month, August, o- Octavian, eight, eighth month, August, etc. Hence, that's where it comes from. And he was the first emperor of Rome, and he replaced the Republic, and he formed the Pax Romana, or the, the Roman peace. So at that time, it was very important to have peace. And the Roman Empire was a place which people loved. If you were a Roman citizen, you considered yourself to be kind of the elite. You were sort of 
uh, above everybody else. It was a place um, where, a time where if people caused a disturbance, they didn't like it. They needed to kind of get rid of that. This Augustus, by the way, was the same chap who in Luke 2 called for the census of the Roman Empire when um, Mary and Joseph obviously had to go to their, their hometown. Now, Philippi then was a Roman colony, and that meant that it had special privileges, it had less tax. Um, it almost became like a bit of a transplanted Rome. Now, when I've preached previously, I've spoken about the church of us being almost like a beachhead in enemy territory or a, plant, a transplanted DNA of God. Now, in a sense, this is how it worked. So Philippi was, although it wasn't in Rome, it was a, a kind of a mini Rome, and they transplanted their DNA into it. And by doing that, they then ensured that there was peace and things were all Roman around there, Romanesque. Um, and one of the things that they did was ex-military officials who went out into their, uh, the battles and came back, and then it was, but they demobbed them and they didn't quite know what to do with them. They would give these chaps land in the different colonies. And so in Philippi, you would have people who would be ex-military men who had fought for Rome and for the empire, and they would then be given a piece of land and settled in these places to, and, and ensure that the, the DNA carried on. And guys who were willing to give their life for this, of course, would then live out the Roman values very strongly into these different parts of the empire. Now in verse 23, um, Paul goes out to look for a place of prayer. So they come into this town of Philippi. And by the way, the book of Philippians, when you read it, there are no Old Testament references in that at all, which gives you an indication of how Gentile this place actually was. Um, and so they came looking for a place of prayer, for a synagogue. And there wasn't one. Now there too, in order for a synagogue to be formed, you need ten men. So hence there weren't ten Jewish men in Philippi or ten Jewish men with enough conviction to have made, put together a synagogue. And as we see when Paul travels, he used to go to the synagogues and he'd preach in the synagogues in the places. So he goes off and looks for a synagogue and he can't find one at the river. The first lesson I think when I read this that I find is that we mustn't doubt that God's working in the world. Because even when we come into a town like this, which would have been so Roman, without any Jewish synagogues, Paul didn't doubt. He still went out looking for that man of faith or that place of faith. And uh, the first person he found wasn't a man of faith, but a, a woman of faith or a woman who was seeking God. And there were three people who I want to point out here who kind of was the, the beginnings of this church in Philippi and who started the basis of it. And the first one was this woman called Lydia. And she's an interesting lady because she's a very wealthy businesswoman. And she owned a house obviously large enough to accommodate four extra people because she invited them home. And so that's not a small thing at that time. And she was a seller of purple cloth. Now, in those days, purple cloth wasn't that um, readily available. And apparently it came from a shellfish called murex, which they crushed it and then it became, that was where they got the purple from. And uh, it, it came from a place called Thyatira, um, which was famed for its purple cloth. In fact, there was a, a guild of, of dyers in that place. And that was part of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, Thyatira. And so some people, some commentators even suggest that maybe her name wasn't Lydia as such, but she was known as Lydia or, you know, the, the Lydian lady because that's where she came from and she made the cloth, etc. Um, and she was a Gentile who was clearly seeking. And what we find here is that when Paul came with his message, 
she responded. So we have a lady of clear high standing, somebody who is a, a wealthy businesswoman who responds to the message. And she says, if you consider me to be a believer, come to my house. And they were baptized. Wonderful. Start of, of, a, of a church here. So in this Philippian city, which seems like it had no hope, here's a, a bit of hope that starts off. Then there's a second person who we meet in this little narrative, and this is a, somebody very different to Lydia, also a woman or an adolescent, and that's a slave girl. So we have Lydia, the wealthy um, merchant, and then we have the slave girl. And I find this a fascinating little part in Scripture because we have a slave girl who's possessed by the python demon, the, the part of the Oracle of Delphi where they would speak out things. And this slave girl was wandering through the streets shouting, almost evangelizing. You know, and, I, and I look at that and I kind of go, what's this about? That the, the demon within her points to these guys and says, these are the people, you know, listen to them. You've got to listen to their message because that's how you're going to be saved. And the other thing which I find quite interesting is as Paul's going around, he gets a bit hatful with this. You know, it's like, hey, man, like she, almost like she's this mosquito following him all the time. And eventually he has enough. And he turns around and he says, in Jesus' name, be quiet. You know, just stop it. There we go. It's up on the screen. Um, and sometimes we can be tempted to go, hey, that's not bad. That's free advertising. You know, this is a marketing department I didn't um, ask for. But actually, God doesn't need demonic help with his work. And he can do his work by himself. And I sometimes wonder why the demons would even go that route. And you sort of think, at times, things seem wonderful. Okay, let's go with it. Cool, it's working for our purpose and all the rest. But if they had associated themselves with this slave girl, then actually their message would have been discredited and would have been aligned with that. And God doesn't need that in our lives. And so they turn around and they say, be gone. Now, of course, she made money, as we heard. And so her owners went, hang on, our pockets are now also exhausted and we don't have any um, money coming in. And so they turned on these men. The same thing happened in Ephesus, in fact. The silversmiths, if you remember. They had the temple to Artemis, uh, uh, Diana, and, and they made these silver coins, which said Neokoros, or the temple warden. And, and so that was where they made their money from. Here, they were making money off this girl, exploiting her. And so then they turned on Paul and Silas, made stories, Hey, these guys are, you know, they, they're not doing it our way. They're Jewish, etc. Made up a little package deal and everybody said, yes, that's it. Throw them in jail. And so they get locked away. And then we have the jail episode where we have a Philippian jailer. And for sure, he would have been one of these ex-military men. Um, a Roman commander or something would have been transplanted there and he would have then been overseeing this jail. I'm sure it wasn't a nice place. Surely not. Um, when you hear stories of how these, these jails were. And here they are in the middle, in the center, also. God uh, kind of, these are dangerous guys. So what do you do with them? Put them right in the middle so everybody can hear them. And then they sang and they, in the middle of the night. Once again, what a challenge. I'm sure that I would be moping and groping and going, oh, please, I, I didn't do it. Help me, let me out. But no, they sang God's praises. And then there was an earthquake and the doors all broke open. And this Guy, this jailer, comes in knowing, because he's been in the military, he knows how it works. If people escape, I'm dead. Okay, I'll do the honorable thing. Let's pull the sword out. No, don't do it. 
Now, he probably heard that slave girl too. He probably heard the rumor. And so he asks the question, so what must I do to be saved? Gosh, this is bigger than me. This is amazing. Look what God's, your chains are off. You've been let, set free. What must I be, do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus. And then there's a transformation from a hardened military jailer type oak to washing his wounds, to taking him home again. Once again, there's a home involved, taking people into your personal space, feeding, just a transformation. And I can't imagine how a guy like that who's probably been on battlefields and seen death and and blood takes a compassionate view, except that God was there. And God came into his life and transformed this man. And then his family and he are baptized. They believe and they're baptized. And so what, what I see in this picture are three different people. Now, I don't know what happened with the slave girl, but um, given this context, I assume that she probably would have been connected somehow to this church setting, but Lydia and this jailer and the others, three different people in completely different spaces. And God reaches each one of them exactly where they are and exactly their need. They had different national origins. I mean, Lydia was from uh, an immigrant out of Asia. The slave girl, well, presumably Greek. She could have been from somewhere else. Uh, but she didn't really have any identity. She belonged to somebody else. Uh, she wasn't even her own person. And then you have this jailer who would have most likely been a Roman person who has relocated. But here, under Jesus, they found unity. They could, together, out of these diverse places, and I just look around this room now even as, uh, as I'm preaching, and I look and I can see people are from so many different places, so many diverse backgrounds, but together we find unity in Christ in this thing called his church. And then not only that, but they came from vastly social backgrounds too. Lydia, wealthy, clearly. So she didn't really have a care in the need when, uh, you know, when it came to her needs and stuff. Then you have the slave who, as I said, didn't even own herself. She was owned by somebody else. She had a massive need of identity. And then the jailer was kind of socially half, he would have been the, like the upper middle class sort of thing between them, a public servant, um, you know, comfortable but not quite the Lydia businesswoman. So social backgrounds. Personal needs. Again, coming from such different places. Lydia the intellectual who, who was seeking God, um, probably disenchanted because there were so many other religions out there. You, I would imagine she probably would have listened in on them, but she was seeking God. Then you have the slave girl who had these psychological needs to be met. And then this, this jailer who's going, what, what must I do to be saved when I see God? And so as I look at this journey over the last three weeks of, of the, our church, Sarepta, Alex, firstly preaching the gospel, today is a day of salvation. That, that's the key. The key to this is the jailer's words. What must I do to be saved? That's the key. Let's not lose that. Because sometimes we talk things as if everybody's invited to the party. Well, you are, but you've got to come to the party through Jesus Christ. And that's the key. And if we haven't got to that point where we can say, what must I do to be saved? And the answer comes, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and in faith, receive him as your Lord and Savior and Emmanuel. How beautiful is that? That's the first part. Once we're there, then as Alan preached, we are a royal priesthood. We are a chosen people. We are, how amazing is that? But yet, when we look at a picture like this of the Philippian church, it just reminds me of who we are. We are this beautiful cloth 
woven together by a weaver. So different. Some people work with their hands. Some people are intellectual. Some people are, are skinny and fit. Other people are a bit more sort of um, luxuriant. Some people love their food. Some people are, are from this area. Some people have come out from other areas. Some people are not even from South Africa. Some people, it seems like they're from the moon there. So. <laughs> but isn't that amazing? And God brings us together in a church, and he says, now do what you need to do. And on my heart this morning is really that, to say, Sarepta, we're here because God has placed us here for this time, for now. Let us check our hearts. Let's start by answering that question. Have we been saved? And when we have God in our hearts like that, then it doesn't matter what happens to us. People can make up stories. They can throw us into prison. They can, like the jailer, you can, your heart can be turned to be compassionate to those people who are suffering. We can pray for the sick. We can visit the sick. We can show the people around us who we are, Jesus, in us, just because of who we are and the way that we, we are together. And so I, when, I saw the, when I read this, I just thought, that is just so amazing. That's who we are. Let us live like that. Let us invite one another into our homes. Let us care for each person next to us. Let's bow our heads and just pray and ask God to open our hearts and minds to this message. Father, we thank you. And we thank you so much that you, you love us with the love that you do. If you didn't love us like you did, we would be finished. But you do and we're not because of your great salvation. We thank you that through Jesus we can come into a place which is peace with you, wholeness, and even now we're living in eternity. We thank you that we have that answer. What should I do to be saved? We know that because you've revealed it to us. And we thank you that so many of us this morning have that salvation in our hearts. But we thank you too that you made us so different, so wonderfully different. And you've woven us into this beautiful thing called your church. And we thank you that we, we are here for a purpose. And I pray, God, that in our hearts you'll stir us that you'll bring joy, you'll bring peace, and you'll also bring purpose, that together as Sarepta we will just spread your word around us into the neighboring community and that people will see you through us. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Amen.